Hello, friends. Welcome. Today's episode is about questions that have intrigued me for my entire life. Things like, how do whales get from Alaska to Hawaii and back again every single year? How do birds know how to migrate many, many thousands of miles? I'm chatting today with author Ed Young, who has written a book called An Immense World. How animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us. And I could have talked to him all day. It is overwhelmingly interesting. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I am very excited to be chatting today with Ed Young, and I am a big fan, and I am very excited to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, too. Well, anybody who has followed me for any period of time knows that I am an animal lover. And I actually had your book, An Immense World, added to my cart in pre-order. I saw it coming out, and I was like, that is a book for me. (laughs) I absolutely loved it. It was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times. That's a huge achievement, first of all. Congratulations on that. And the subtitle of the book is How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. And first of all, the book is so aptly titled. It absolutely piqued my interest, made me very curious about what it was going to be about. And the book did not disappoint. I have often wondered, and I think this is like a normal human curiosity, how do animals do things like, well, I'm a salmon and I will be (laughs) returning to the stream where I hatched. Like, how do you find it? How does a bird decide, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to migrate like, 3,000 miles. Right, right. Or, Very casual. Or, yeah, it's so, super easy. Like, we're, while the rest of us humans are need a computer to say, turn left at the light, how does a whale swim underwater from Alaska to Hawaii? You know, like, and just do that every year. Repeat, repeat yearly. Clearly, there is an immense world around us that humans cannot experience. And I'm so curious, how did you become interested in this topic? Oh, so, I mean, I've been fascinated by animals since I was very, very young. You know, I was the uh, kid who watched nature documentaries and insisted that my parents take me to zoos. I, you know, read a lot of wildlife books. So I've always been interested in animals. And when I started writing about science professionally about 15 years ago, um, I wrote about a, a wide number of topics, but you know how animals behave, how they sense the world was always chief among them. So this has been a, a sort of passion of mine for a long time, but um, the, the real idea for the book actually came from my wife. She was a marine biologist by training. She did her graduate work on the vision of fish that live in coral reefs, like what kinds of things they might see. And um, in 2018, in a rainy winter's day, uh, we were sitting in a cafe and I was, you know, morosely saying that I had no ideas for a second book and that my well of ideas had run dry and this this was it for me. And uh, <laughs> she she very calmly suggested that this wasn't true and that maybe the sensory worlds of other animals was an area that was rich for exploration. And she was right. And I think she's, she was right for, for a bunch of different reasons. It is an area full of fascinating science. But But it's also, I think, 
deeply philosophically rich. This question of what other animals think, how they experience the world, I think touches on big questions about consciousness, about subjective experiences. And I think, as you say, it is a thing that I think a lot of people idly wonder about. It's not something that touches a lot of us in our day-to-day experience, but I think it is a thing that a lot of people have wondered about. And and I I like that the book seems to have you know, resonated with that that particular frequency, that little kindling of curiosity in a lot of people who read it. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I am somebody who has always had sort of a lot of wonder for the natural world, and this absolutely heightened that. I just felt, I found myself being like, dang. (laughs) That's so interesting. So can you talk to us a little bit? You know, of course, humans know what our senses are. We know how we experience things. Humans know that things like our sense of smell is very intimately tied to our memories. Of course, we know how we experience the world. And most animals also have senses like smell and sight, although not all of them, some of them similar to ours. But yet there are many ways that animals perceive the world that humans have seemingly no capacity or very limited capacity to tap into. What are some of the ways that animals perceive the world that are different than ours? So there are several entire senses that we don't have access to. So you talked about birds migrating over long distances. So songbirds migrate partly with vision, which we do have, but also by sensing the Earth's magnetic field. It's as if they have a living compass inside their bodies that allows them to point in exactly the right direction, even when all other landmarks are obscured. The same is true for things like sea turtles, um, which use a very similar magnetic sense to navigate around entire oceans. And this is a skill that, by all accounts, humans do not have. Similarly, we do not sense the electric fields that living things generate. Um, So all living things, especially in water, produce very minute electric fields. We can't sense these. But a lot of fish can. A lot of fish produce Mm -hmm. their own electricity and can sense the electric fields generated by other things. Sharks, platypuses, actually quite a lot of animals can sense electric fields. And then there are variants of senses that we have that animals take to a ludicrous degree. So if I'm swimming in water 
um, and someone uh, is swimming next to me and kicks their feet. I can probably feel the currents produced by their legs. But that pales in comparison next to what a seal can do. A seal can detect the tracks left behind by swimming fish. You might not even think that swimming fish leave behind a track, right? That That's a bizarre thing to think about water. But a fish, as it swims, creates a wake of swirling currents of turbulence that last for maybe up to a few minutes. And a seal with its whiskers can detect those tracks that are invisible to us and use it to follow a fish with incredible precision. To take vision, for those of us who can see, vision is a primary sense. It is, it is our dominant sense. It is the sense that fills our culture, our language, a lot of our words for understanding the world. To see one's point of view, for example, are all based on visual metaphors. But our way of seeing the world is kind of weird. We have two eyes. They are on the front of our heads and they point forwards. These are Actually, kind of weird things for, for the animal kingdom. There are animals with eight eyes, hundreds of eyes. A simple bird, take a, a duck or a pigeon, has eyes on the sides of their head. So they can see with almost a full arc around them. A duck sitting on a pond can see the entirety of the sky without needing to move its head at all. And that makes its its sense of vision very different to a human's. Similarly, uh, there are other creatures that can see colors that are invisible to us. So just beyond the violet end of the rainbow lies ultraviolet, a color that we can't see. But ultraviolet is incredibly common in nature, and it is actually incredibly common among animals. Um, in fact, most animals that can see can see ultraviolet. So we're actually very strange in not being able to see this color. And because we can't see this color, our view of nature is kind of weird. If you look at, say, a sunflower, like what color is a sunflower? It's yellow. It's yellow, right? And it's kind of uniformly yellow. But if you can see ultraviolet, a sunflower has a bright bullseye of ultraviolet around its center. And those kinds of markings are really common on a lot of flowers, and they're really visible to birds and to insects. So things that pollinate flowers see these extra symbols, these markings that guide them to flowers, that draw their attention, that are invisible to us. This all speaks to the core premise of the book, which is that Every creature, humans included, for all our vaunted intelligence and abilities, are only really perceiving a very thin sliver of the fullness of reality. There is so much around us that we, we don't even perceive, let alone think about. It just makes the world that much more interesting, as if the world wasn't interesting to begin with, knowing that this is out there, knowing that we are only experiencing a fraction of what actually exists in our immense world. Uh, I just find that so cool. Let me ask you a couple questions that I have long wondered about. Okay. We all know that dogs smell extremely well. Yes. My experience with smell is that most smells that are like relatively strong generate an immediate judgment in the human brain. It's a good smell. It smells so good in here. It's a bad smell. Like, what is that? You know what I mean? Like, we immediately make a value judgment about if something smells good or bad. You either love the smell of gasoline or you hate it. If you are a dog and your sense of smell is your primary sense, 
and you smell so much more and so much better than humans do. And I, first of all, I think it's really fascinating that dogs can smell things like, oh, you're about to have a seizure. But it can't be, this is my hypothesis, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. It can't be that dogs have the same value judgments about smells that humans do, because otherwise your experience of the world would be probably overwhelmingly bad. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, okay, there's, there's a bunch of interesting, there's several interesting things to unpack here. The first is that actually our sense of smell, it is absolutely true that smell produces very, very strong and immediate emotional reactions to us. People often say that that just neurologically, just in terms of the wiring, smell is the sense that has the shortest route to the brain. There's just like more direct connections there. And I think that's that's part of it. But that kind of immediacy and that strong emotional reaction can be misleading because it, it makes us think that smell, there's a lot of our reactions to smell is, are very innate and universal. And actually that isn't true. Smell is profoundly influenced by culture and by learning. So most things actually don't smell bad to like babies. Babies mm. learn that th- some certain things smell bad because they are bad. And and actually, there are very few things that, that possibly nothing that smells universally bad or good across human cultures. So the fact that we have strong emotional reactions to smell doesn't quite reflect some universality. It, it really reflects that it's very, very easy to learn about smell and to attach emotional reactions to them. I think the same is likely true for something like a dog, even which exists in a much, much more smell-oriented world. And when you see a dog reacting to different, certain things, I think it reflects the fact that dogs don't exist in human culture, right? Or, or at least like we can train them to avoid certain things, right? But this is why like dogs will sniff poop. Dogs will sniff each other's pee. Like, my dog loves the scent of earthworms in particular. Like if he's rolling down on something in the street, like 90% chance he has found an earthworm somewhere on the pavement and we haven't seen it yet. Yes. Like, yes. So weird. But I think that it is certainly true that there are a lot of things that most humans would find repulsive that dogs don't, right? And poop is right. the, the obvious uh, example of that. I've heard from dog scientists that citrus smells are often off-putting to dogs, like not universally so, but that is an example of something that like, I think most humans would be like, oh, like lemony scents are great, dogs not so keen. But I think that the, the real point here is that dogs do exist in a very, very different sensory world than we do. One that is dominated by smell compared to the one that sighted humans have, which is dominated by vision. And that I think also dogs use smell in a very, very different way. Like it's it's partly that their noses are just better. So they have they have more hardware. They have just more of everything that's in our nose, um, more of the receptors, more of the neurons, more smell-related genes. They just have more of all of it. But also they're just using their nose all the time. In the main humans don't do like smell is sort of a a passive thing you know i i'm i right like i i'm not going around sniffing the sidewalk i'm not going around sniffing <laughs> other people and i think partly because of the hot so partly because of the hardware and partly because it's the of the way it's used dogs do exist in this wonderful rich world of smell that we 
not only don't access, but also I think don't really respect enough. I write in the book that one thing I see in a lot of dog owners, and I totally get it, is is people will pull their dogs along as they walk because they see a walk as a means of exercise or a means of travel from point A to point B. But for a dog who wants to sniff, a walk is an act of exploration. It's a little adventure. They get to sense what has changed in this environment. I walk my dog three times a day. To my eyes, very little has changed in our, you know, the blocks we walk along, right? It's just boring. But to his nose, a lot has changed. A dog he might know has peed on that patch of grass. What is that dog up to? How healthy is that dog? And what has that dog been eating? So it's not just an active venture, it's also a very social activity. You know, I I often compared my dog sniffing patches of pee on the sidewalk to me checking my Instagram feed. It's his way of catching up on how the other individuals he knows have been up to, even though they're not right next to him at, at the time. It, it is a profoundly social thing, and it is, a, it is a social experience that is predicated on smell. It's such an interesting point that you brought up that so much of human perception of smell is based on our culture right? And where you grow up, the foods you grow up eating. And so those neurons then wire and fire together for the rest of your life, very likely. Whereas dogs don't grow up in that same human cultural experience where they are like, "Mm, it just reminds me of a campfire in September. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have that same human emotional neuron component. It's such an interesting thing to think about. 
it is a subscription service that finds your personal info on the web, searches all the databases, and then helps prevent identity theft by removing that information from all of these databases. So when you sign up, you tell Delete Me exactly what information you want deleted, and then their experts take it from there. They send you a report every month of like, we found your information in the following places and we removed it. More simply, Delete Me does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal info off the web. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount just for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use promo code Sharon at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash Sharon and use code Sharon at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash Sharon, promo code Sharon. Do whales migrate with smell and sensing the Earth's magnetic fields? Because this is one of the other things that I've been curious about. You mentioned that bird migration, one of the things they use is vision. But underwater is dark. It is dark. <laughs> it is dark. You can't, and can't it's see murky, very far. Yep. And you don't have landmarks of like, oh, coming up on the shores of the Atlantic. You know, like it's you don't have that same ability to use vision when you're swimming in the waters of Alaska. How do like gray whales migrate from Mexico all the way up to Seattle or humpbacks migrate from Alaska to Hawaii and there and back again every year? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that the answer is almost certainly that they use a bunch of sensors and a lot of them work pretty well underwater and over long ranges. So smell is certainly one of them, although I can't say that for sure. The ability to sense the Earth's magnetic field, there is some really interesting evidence from actually a very, very recent study from only about like three years or so ago that whales might be able to sense the Earth's magnetic field too. Now, the reason we know that things like songbirds can do this is that people did experiments where they put songbirds in cages, put the cages in a completely dark sealed room, and then put like little ink pads at the bottom of the cages. So the birds could hop on the ink pads and then would try and hop out of the cages. And every time they did that, they would step on like a piece of blotting paper that was lining the edge of the cage. And you could see very clearly that the birds were always trying to hop in the same direction. Like they knew which way to go, even though they couldn't use any other sense. And if you put them in a chamber that allows you to alter the magnetic field, then they will hop in a new direction. So great experiments, very clear. You can't really do that no. with the whale. No, you, you can't keep them in captivity. You cannot. There's not really an ink pad large nope. enough for it. <laughs> Wouldn't work. So every now and then, the sun throws a massive hissy fit and does what's called a solar storm. And it produces a ton of radiation that, as a byproduct, messes with the Earth's magnetic field. And so... You might think that if whales are navigating using that magnetic field on days when there's a lot of solar storm activity, they're more likely to go off course. And that is exactly right. So gray whales on days with lots of solar storm activity are four times more likely to strand on beaches 
than on days without solar storm activity. Now, that's not a, a smoking gun, right? There's maybe other ways of explaining that, but I think it's really compelling. And I think it's probably the best evidence we'll get because, as we said, whales are really, really difficult to study. So that might be part of it. I think that they also use sound in really interesting ways. So we know that a lot of animals like bats and dolphins can navigate using sound. So they produce high-pitched calls, and then they listen out for the rebounding echoes, and they use the timing between the call and the echo to judge the distance between themselves and the objects around them. This is called echolocation. Now, big whales do not make high-pitched calls. In fact, they make quite the opposite. They make very low-pitched calls that are too low for us to hear. So they're not quite echolocating in the same way, but it's also possible that those calls, which do travel over immense distances, might be used for navigation. A whale might be able to produce them, listen for an echo, and use that to kind of map the topography of the ocean. Do they do this? Well, we don't know for sure, but certainly human scientists can use whale calls in this way. Like we can use whale calls to map the seismic terrain of the ocean. And if we can do it, I think there's a reasonable chance that they can too. We can make a lot of educated guesses, but especially with creatures that are hard to study, that are very big, that are very intelligent, raising ethical questions about what you know kinds of research you can do. Like we might never know, but I do think it is kind of wonderful to make the attempt to try and think about these questions, even if you'll never fully understand what the answer is. Totally. I wonder, too, about this reputation of cats that have, you know, cats have nine lives. They can always rescue themselves from weird situations. Or if you drop a cat upside down like this, they will always right themselves. For sure. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. there, I don't know what the explanation for that is, but there has to be some sense that we are not aware of. You know, if you think about a human, like I'm going to drop you off a building back first, humans are not like, oh, quick, let me rotate so that I land in a more advantageous position and I'll land on my feet and it'll be fine. It's just weird to think about. Animals are so fascinating and weird. So this is a really interesting question because the sense that's at play here is one that we also have and that people very rarely think of. So, you know, we think there are five senses and we think that because of Aristotle and he was wrong. There are more than that. One of the ones we'd never think about is equilibrioception. It's a sense of balance, right? So it's the sense that tells me if I close my eyes and without any other cues, that I am the right way up. and Or that if I was doing a handstand, I can't do a handstand, but let's pretend that I could, that I would be upside down. That sense lies in the inner ear. You know, it's why if you, if you spin around a lot, you get dizzy. Equilibrium reception. There are a few senses like this that are so kind of fundamental that it's actually hard to find research on it. And I, I searched, you know, I, I was thinking about doing a whole chapter on this, but there's just not enough, there was just wasn't enough to write about. Few people study it, few people study it in other animals. But you would think that it's actually a very rich vein for study because, as you say, let's think there are things like cats, which have this incredible sense of balance, which can write, you know, land in their feet from a fall. How is a cat's sense of equilibrioception different from a human's? There are a few things that I found on this that weren't in the book, but that are like 
Little interesting tidbit. So, like, there was one study suggesting that cheetahs have a really, really good sense of equilibrioception because not only are they cats, but they are very, very fast cats. Mm-hmm. There was one that suggested that maybe th- things like dolphins have a terrible sense of equilibrioception because they frankly don't need it. Like, if you exist in this completely three dimensional world where you can move in any direction and where just a sense of, of, am I the right way up, maybe doesn't matter that much. Right. We absolutely know if we're right side up. If you go on a roller coaster that takes you upside down, that produces a very strong feeling in your body. Very strong feeling of like, oh my God, like I'm upside down. Being upside down actually can feel a little panic inducing because you know it's wrong. It's wrong that I'm upside down right now. But that you're, you're absolutely right that that would not serve a dolphin. You you wouldn't want them to be like, oh no, I'm upside down. Yeah, you know, when they're yeah. when they're constantly moving so agilely and powerfully through the water, being upside down would sometimes be useful. Yep, I agree. <laughs> oh my goodness, what is your favorite animal sense that you researched for this book? This is always a very hard question for me to answer because there are so many and it's like, you know, it's like forcing you to choose between all of your babies. Okay, how about this? If you could have one of them. So when I think about this, I try and think about something that I think you would have an interesting conscious experience of and that would give you a very different kind of conscious experience of what you have. Because like when we talk about birds navigating with the Earth's magnetic field. It's not entirely clear to me that it's like a bird is flying along and going, ha-ha, over there, right? Like, what is that feeling? Is it just a kind of a pull? Like, does it have like a kind of heads-up display? I, I don't really know. I don't really know. So the one I tend to think of is echolocation as practiced by a dolphin. Because underwater, echolocation, the ability to use sound to navigate, has some really interesting properties that it doesn't in air. First, it works over much longer distances because sound travels further in the water without losing energy. So a bat trying to echolocate can only really do so for maybe like max a dozen feet or so in front of it. A dolphin can do it for like meters, maybe kilometers. And that would be astonishing to me, Mm. you know, like to have that much of a sense in water, whereas you say, like, vision, really not very good. I think that would transform your experience of being underwater. And underwater, echolocation, so sonar, also allows you to peer inside a lot of objects. It works a little bit like a medical scanner because sound tends to reflect off when it encounters changes in density. And because, like, our flesh is about the same density as water, our skin, our surface of our body is going to reflect much less sound than, say, our lungs or our skeleton. So a dolphin echolocating on a human likely can sense its skeleton. A dolphin echolocating on a fish can sense the um, swim bladder inside the fish, the the air-filled organ that allows the fish to control its buoyancy. So there's this element of peering inside an object that I think this sense gives you that most of the ones we have do not. And then I think finally, like dolphin echolocation is just kind of absurdly precise. It is almost more precise than human vision is, which is 
like kind of shocking to me. Like one of the the scientists I spoke to talks about this experiment where he worked with a false killer whale, a, a kind of dolphin, and he presented it with two cylinders. Her job was to try and tell the difference between the two cylinders. And she would very reliably do this. It, sometimes the cylinders would be filled with like water versus alcohol, or they would be slightly different in size. But there was one experiment where both the cylinders were supposedly exactly the same. And the dolphin was cueing the researchers that like, no, these are different. And they were like, no, these are the same. We ordered them to be the same. And they went back to the machinists that created the cylinders who checked them and found that actually they were different. Like one of them had like a tiny taper at one end. So it was like millimeters narrower in one point than the other cylinder. The humans looking at these things absolutely could not tell the no, difference. No. The dolphin totally could. Uh, That's and, amazing. Yeah, I, I that just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. Yeah. Have you heard those stories just anecdotally of a dolphin trainer at a zoo? There was one who was pregnant and the dolphin could absolutely tell that she was pregnant and yeah. they had a like a relationship with each other. And the dolphin was constantly like nosing her belly. Apparently, this dolphin knew she was pregnant before she did. I'm sure there's a smell aspect involved. I know that there's hormonal shifts with pregnancy. I think that 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 feels to be like just such a, an echolocation thing. Like I said, the dolphins can peer inside you. They absolutely can sense fetuses in, in pregnant people. Like I, I would be shocked if they couldn't do that. So then the other skill that they have, and actually quite a lot of animals have with their respective senses, which I think is incredible, is it's a thing called cross-modal recognition, which is just a fancy way for saying you sense a thing with one sense, and then you can recognize it with another. So I'm holding up a battery, right? Like if I closed my eyes and I didn't know this was a battery, I could run it through my fingers and I could know, okay, it's a cylindrical object. It's got a little bumpy bit on one end, right? I build up a representation of the object in my mind and I open my eyes. And if there was a bunch of crap on the, the, the table in front of me, I could go, well, this is the thing that I just touched. That's actually quite a sophisticated skill. And a lot of animals can do it with senses that seem weird to us. So a dolphin can echolocate on an object that it cannot see and then recognize that same object, even if it was presented like on a computer screen, which, again, is wild to me. Because when you think about that, echolocation is just a souped up form of hearing, right? Like... If I heard the sound of a piano, for example, I am not going to create the representation of a piano in my mind, right? There's nothing there that cues me to the nature of the thing creating the sound. And I think it shows us something special about echolocation, that it's not actually just a souped up form of hearing. It's actually a little bit like a weird version of touch. Like it is an active way of exploring the world. It's almost as if the dolphin was reaching out with these invisible hands and grasping an object in front of it, exploring it, feeling it, getting its shape. 
and then creating this representation, which then translates to its eyes. You know, I think it again speaks to the very different nature of some of the senses and the different things that you can use that you can do with something like hearing. It doesn't have to be a thing where like I'm just sitting here and passively receiving sound into my ears. It can be a very active sense, a sense with, with which you, you explore the world. That's absolutely fascinating. And it, that's such a great example that you just gave, that as a human so with a very sophisticated mammalian brain, you can close your eyes, feel an object, and then potentially, potentially recognize it on a desk in front of you out of many objects if there were not too many objects that were similar. Right. Right? Like if you yeah. have a Lego, a battery, and a cup of coffee, easy. But what you're saying, like with the dolphins, is that they could perceive the differences between two batteries, <laughs> the two batteries that seem identical to you. But actually, this one, the bump is one sixteenth of a millimeter larger at right. the end than yeah. the other one. That's incredible. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you seen the study that found that dogs actually do not recognize the people's faces? No, I haven't seen that. So it was recent and it was trying to see, do dogs actually recognize their owners? Mm -hmm. And of course they do recognize their owners, but they don't recognize their owners because of their owner's face. They use their owner's smell. They use their owner's shape, their overall body shape. Like you're yay high and yay wide, and they use your sound, the way that you sound. But they do not recognize you. Like if you do nothing else but just put your like disembodied face on a computer screen, there is no recognition from dogs. They don't say that's Ed. I'd know him anywhere. Totally makes sense. I've not um, seen the specific study you mentioned, but like absolutely checks out given what we know about dogs. I think dog owners will will be kind of familiar with this when we dog sit other dogs. Those dogs will tend to like react if we walk past someone who is the kind of vague shape of their owner. Like they'll be like, is that mum? But they won't react in quite the same way when they get like close enough to smell or to hear. I think that it's very, very easy to believe that dogs recognize your face because I think, again, we're so primed to think about vision. But like, I come home, my dog is already at the door, he is wagging excitedly, and he is staring me in the face. But 
because we're visually oriented, we look at his eyes, we make eye contact. But what we miss is, of course, in front of the eyes is his nose, right? So the, inevitably, as he's looking at me, he's also sniffing me. And that's the important bit. And I think that is the bit that we miss. It's a great example. And it's just one of many ways in which we misconstrue what animals around us are doing. And even the animals that we spend the most amount of time with. I spend every day with my dog and I still don't fully know what's going on inside his head, which I think is kind of cool. I agree. The fact that we can't know the answers to some things, it just makes it that much more interesting sometimes. Yeah, I you know, agree. Like the movie Up where the dogs wear a collar that just <laughs> says what they're thinking, you know, yeah. and what, th- what they're thinking is, I smell you. I, lo- I just met you and I love you. Won't you be my best friend? In some ways, it's actually it's actually more fun that we don't know. I agree. Oh, and I absolutely loved An Immense World. I absolutely read it and felt like, what an immense world, you know? <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> what an immense world. And it made me feel like almost like that sense, you know, when you're, you're looking at pictures of space, you know, the NASA picture, the James Webb telescope, where you feel like, dang, I'm small. You know, like that, we're so tiny on this earth. And in some ways, it produced the same feelings in me. Like, there's so much that I cannot even perceive that tiny little ants are out here doing stuff that I can't even imagine. Uh, It just really produced that feeling of just wonder at what is all around us that we can't even sense. I'm really glad. That was the intention. That was my hope. And I'm glad it worked. Mm, It did. Thank you so much for being here today. I loved the book and I loved chatting with you. Thank you much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Ed Young's book, An Immense World, was named one of the New York Times' 10 best books of the year. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. This book is going to blow your mind. If you are at all interested in the natural world, if you love animals, if you love understanding about how the universe functions, oh my goodness, you are going to get so much out of reading it. So pick up a copy wherever you buy books. This show is researched and hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. Our executive producer is Heather Jackson. Our audio producer is Jenny Snyder. And if you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform? That helps us so much. And we always love to see your shares and tags on social media. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>